All right, you guys, open up your Bible, please, to the third chapter of Revelation. Last time, which is a couple weeks ago, we finished our up the address to the church in Sardis. If you remember from that text, Jesus had nothing good to say about them. He had nothing good to say to the church in Sardis. Not the type of sermon that you would have in most American churches, but the kind that's needed in many American churches. But this was a dead and a dying church, and they received rebuke from the Lord Jesus. But now, in this, our sixth address in Revelation 2 and 3, uh, to the sixth address, or sixth address to a sixth church in Revelation 2 and 3, we have the congregation at Philadelphia. And the Lord has no rebuke, or he has no chastisement or substantial warning for them. This congregation gets nothing but commendation, uh, nothing but encouragement to them. And this letter, like the previous one, shares the similar pattern and presence of the other addresses as well. And remember, that's an important part of the universality of these specific letters. In other words, just because this address to a specific real congregation that existed 1900 years ago, or at least, you know, when this when this letter was written, around 90 AD, so more than 900 years ago even, it doesn't mean that the things in here don't have application for us. They do. I remember being that there are seven congregations in view in here symbolizing completeness and fullness. The number seven in Revelation is often symbolic of that, of completeness and fullness. In addition to the description that we read in chapter one about the head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ, these seven letters are instructional for every church that exists in the time between Jesus's ascension and exaltation to the right hand of the Father until his second bodily coming, which will happen at the end of the age. So there's application from these letters that are to these real churches that existed you know, over nearly 2,000 years ago, and they have application to us today and to every church that exists in this time period that we're in, in between Jesus's first and second comings. So let's read God's word and then pray, asking the Lord's help as we study and meditate on it. So we're going to read um, the whole address to the Church of Philadelphia, beginning at verse 7 in chapter 3. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David. Who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and but you kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews but are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast for what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I shall write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which come down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. But ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. That was an amen from Trey. I heard it. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray, Lord, that you would cause us to rightly understand it. We know and we remember that this book, Revelation, is often confused in our culture and society. We ask, God, that you would help us to rightly understand it so that we might exalt you and grow in love for you and that we would be able to be encouraged from it as well. 
To you be all praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So, as I pointed out uh, with each of these letters, knowing something about the about each church and its particular environment, like where it existed in what's now modern-day Turkey, um, helps us in understanding the promised blessings or threat and curses given by Jesus. And to that end, then, Philadelphia was a city which had experienced widespread damage as a result of an earthquake around A.D. 17. In fact, so even before this letter to uh, the church was written, about you know, 60 years before it, at least, to 70 years. So, in fact, that recent history of the earthquake uh, greatly factors into the word of encouragement that Jesus gave to the church, even here, this, this struggling congregation. So this ancient city of Philadelphia, which is called today, um, I'm probably saying this wrong, uh, Alishir, uh, A-L-A-S-H-I-R. It was founded about 140 BC by a man named Attalus II, whose surname was Philadelphius. Out of, and out of love for his brother, uh, Eumenes, Attalus named the new city Philadelphia, which of course means the city of brotherly love. And it was located in the strategic road, the strategic path. Uh, They're a little bit south from Sardis. And in this kind of this path, this, this alleyway or this pathway that linked Asia with Europe. And it made it an important center of commerce and trade, almost like a missionary city uh, for, for Greek ideals. The city was like this kind of an open door through which Greek culture spread into, into the South and East Asia Minor, into Syria and Persia. And through which, in turn, Asian goods passed north en route through this city up into Greece and into Rome. And this ancient Philadelphia was, in a sense, a kind of a gateway between the east and the west. In addition to that, uh, the assumption is that Attalus built the city here not only for its strategic location as being this pathway, but also because it had this really fertile soil that produced renowned grapes and wine. But he probably didn't understand the reason for that. And the reason for that was because it was built near an ancient underground volcano. And the city actually itself was built on top of a fault line. And so this massive quake hit the area in AD 17. And the damage was so severe and so widespread. And this is very uncommon for Rome's actions in in this day, that the emperor at the time, Tiberius, exempted the city from paying tribute. For, for paying taxes for some time. The damage was so extensive that he said, you guys don't have to pay any taxes to Rome for a period, I think about, um, you know, over uh, to 10 years or so. And Tiberius even donated vast sums of money to help the city rebuild. But aftershocks from the quake were so strong, they persisted for so long that people ended up sleeping outside of the city in these dwellings, um, like in the wilderness outside of the city for years afterwards. And according to ancient records, a number of people maintain homes and businesses in the city, but they would leave to sleep at night in the surrounding countryside because of fears that the next quake would bury them in their sleep. So the people lived for generations in fear in this city, and they continually suffered these damages from these aftershocks. But Philadelphia's political leaders were so impressed with Tiberius's generosity toward them that they decided to honor Tiberius by renaming the city Neo Caesarea, which means New Caesar. A, ca- a name which stuck for about 30 years until the city was renamed Flavia in the 70s in honor of Emperor Ves- Vespasian, whose other name would go by Titus Flavius Sabinius Vespasinius. 
It's a mouthful. But local residents... No, that was my first time. But local residents still called the city Philadelphia. Even though it had been renamed to New Caesarea and Flavia, local residents still called it Philadelphia, even though his, his name was changed twice. And so according to William Ramsey, in his book on the seven churches, all of these events that I've just mentioned happen physical, literal, truly true events happen in time. All these events play an important role in our Lord's letter to this particular church. Ramsey points out them to us. He says, first, Philadelphia was the missionary city. Secondly, its people lived always in dread of disaster, the day of trial, which we read about in the text. Thirdly, many of his people went out of the city to, to dwell. And fourthly, it took a new name from an imperial god. All of those things, from the city being an open door, both east to west, to the fact that people lived in constant fear of earthquakes, many people choosing to even live outside of the city rather than in it, as well as the re renaming of the city, will be mentioned by our Lord in, our, in his commendation of this particular congregation, those end verses in verses 12 and 13. So that's, that's the background of this city. And try to keep that in mind as we consider the text. Now, just like with the other addresses, Jesus begins by instructing uh, here, it says, the angel, which means the messenger or the pastor of the church in Philadelphia. And then he says, to write these words, says, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. And just like with the previous addresses, this one introduction is calling us back to the revelation of Jesus Christ at the end of chapter one. And he does this primarily, I think, to remind us that Jesus Christ is with his churches. The Lord Jesus is with his churches. He's walking among the lampstands is the way that he said it in Revelation chapter 1. And he, he walks among his people. He knows his people. Jesus is truly with us all. And he is especially with us in the sense of the church coming together when it's gathered to worship. He's here to bless for faithfulness, to protect us from danger, and to warn his people to repent when they aren't being faithful. Now, in a specific letter... Jesus begins by speaking of himself as being holy and by being true. He's the holy one. He's the true one. That's how he identifies himself. And both of these are divine attributes of God. They are true of Yahweh. And the Lord Jesus, by saying these things, is claiming that he is one with the Father, that he is God. Remember, if you were here on Sunday, one of the things that we talked about Sunday morning, was that there's five places in the New Testament where Jesus explicitly is identified as God where it just says it like, you know, Jesus is our God and Savior. That's how it said in First Peter, or Second Peter. But there's not, I don't even know the exact number. of There's, there's so many allusions to the fact that Jesus is God in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, especially in the New Testament. And it's important to point out the context of these attributes. So the prophet Isaiah uses the word holy to describe Yahweh in his book nearly 20 times in his prophetic book. Uh, which is interesting, especially in light of the fact that Jesus is about to refer directly to a messianic prophecy from Isaiah chapter 22. But Jesus is not only holy as is Yahweh holy, he is also true, which is a reference to the fact that he is Israel's true Messiah. And Israel's true Messiah, which is the only Messiah for all mankind, of course, and remember, it's right to think of ourselves as spiritually an Israelite when we're saved. Right? He's, he's Israel's Messiah, and if we are saved, if we are experiencing salvation, then we are 
technically speaking, Israel. We are spiritual Israel. This Jesus is also true God, and he's true man. The very person of Jesus, he is true God, and he is true man. And it was necessary for Jesus to be true God and true man so he could be the Savior. This is the doctrine of the hypostatic union. We've talked about it before. It's explained in the Athanasius Creed very clearly. Um, Jesus has two natures in one person. He has a divine nature and a human nature. He has two wills in the one person. This is who our Savior is, true God and true man. And he needed to be true man so that he could be our covenant head, just like Adam was our original covenant head. He needed to be true man so that he could be our prophet, our priest, and our king. He needed to be true man so that he could be born under the law and be faithful to it. Because all of us, when we are born into this world under our covenant head of Adam, we are born under judgment, the same judgment that Adam bore. We're all born into this world as rebellious sinners, as enemies of God. And Jesus had to be born into this world as a true man. Not, But he wasn't born with the nature of Adam that was already fallen. He was born miraculously through the virgin birth so that he can be our covenant head. And like one of those other things that I mentioned as well. And then he also needed to be true God so that we could have confidence that he would be without sin. And so that just as one person... He could satisfy the penalty of eternal punishment for countless other persons. Think about it. Jesus, when he goes to the cross, when we think about the doctrine of substitution, when he goes to the cross to make atonement, to pay the penalty for our sins, he doesn't just do it for one person. He does it. He's one person himself. And he has a divine nature and a human nature. But he, him, because he has this divine nature, because he's infinite, in other words, because the divine nature is infinite, infinite in being, He's able to satisfy there in that one person the penalty due to all the elect, to all who would ever believe. Whereas normally, you know, if you would think of like, um, like you know, the, the children's story, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and um, Aslan, he goes to the table and he dies, and it's just one for one, right? It's just Aslan for Peter. But Jesus goes and he dies for everybody, for everyone who would believe. Not for everyone in the whole world, but everyone who was chosen in him from before the foundation of the world. Because all that he died for will be redeemed. So Jesus had to be true God and true man. He is the true one. He is the truth, is even his self-revelation in John 6, I believe. He's the true Messiah. And this is an important point, given the fact that the persecution facing the church in Philadelphia was largely started by a local synagogue. And so remember what happened in 70 AD. The temple in Jerusalem is destroyed. The old covenant would be officially done away with. Rome comes in to Jerusalem and they destroy the temple. Uh, you know, the temple that was rebuilt by by Rome and, and by um, by Ezra and Nehemiah earlier, and the Rome added to it with the Gentile courtyard and everything. But that's destroyed in seventy A.D. Uh, Jesus in the Olivet Discourse, like in Matthew twenty four, Matthew twenty five, and chapters of Luke as well, he warns Jews to flee when they see that persecution coming. So by the time of writing this letter, the Jews had been dispersed by Rome. This is 20 years after Jerusalem has been destroyed. And so there were sizable Jewish populations throughout Asia Minor. And the synagogue here was apparently active in opposing the church, similar to the situation in Smyrna Smyrna as well. If you remember the situation in Smyrna, there was Jews there that were called the synagogue of Satan too. That was back in chapter 2. 
But not only is Jesus holy and true, therefore, and, and so these Jews, they are persecuting the Christians that are here. But Jesus is not only holy and true, and therefore both truly God and Israel's Messiah. Jesus also alone holds the keys of David, or the key of David, singular key of David. Not only does this bring to mind what we read in Revelation 118, where Jesus is said to have the keys of Hades and of death in Hades, but Jesus now cites directly from Isaiah 22, 22, and where he says, I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. That's what we just read in verse 7. From this, it's clear, you guys, that Jesus not only holds power over death and the grave, but he alone is the one in whom salvation is found and, and freedom from guilt and the power of sin is to be discovered. Now, since the resurrected Christ alone holds these keys, he's the final judge in the earth. So turn to Isaiah 22 so that you can see this, all right? You can keep your hand in Revelation chapter 3. I, my Bible just flipped to Isaiah 22 in two chunks. So it's, it's kind of near the middle of your Bible. If you see Psalms, you went too far. If you see a clap, Ecclesiastes or Proverbs, you went too far. Isaiah what? Isaiah 22. Uh, we'll look at verse 20 first. It's Isaiah 22, 22 is the passage that Jesus quotes in Revelation 3. But in verse 20, we see the beginning of this prophecy. And verse 20 says, In that day I will call my servant Eli, Eli, Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. And so Hilkiah, you guys, he's, a, he's an official in Hezekiah's kingdom. And so this, this Eliakim, look at what we read of him in verse 21. He says, and I will clothe him with your robe, and I will bind your sash on him, and will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. When, when Yahweh goes on to say this coming one in verse 22, what he opens and no one can shut, and when he shut, no one can open. The point of these things is that Eliakim is a type of the Messiah. Yes, he's a true person who existed during Hezekiah's reign. But he's a type of Christ. And John, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is saying that what Isaiah wrote about this person in Israel's history is meant to see its greatest fulfillment in the, one, in the person of Christ Jesus. He's the, he's the promise of the Davidic covenant even. Jesus himself is. Okay, so that verse in 22, which we didn't read, but it says, And I will place on his shoulder, Eliakim, the key of the house of David, he shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. So let's turn back to Revelation 3. That's the same thing that we read in verse 7. The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Okay, so this phrase in Isaiah about this person who is the son of a servant in Hezekiah's kingdom is a type of Christ pointing to what Jesus would do. And Jesus is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Do you remember what the Davidic covenant is? The, there's all kind. There's multiple covenants in scripture. The Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, there's a covenant of works in the garden, the covenant that God made with Adam. But God makes a covenant with David. That his descendant, that there would be a descendant on the throne. That's correct, Adam. That there would be a descendant on the throne. And we read this in 2 Samuel, I believe it's in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So the point being 
is that, you know, that descendant wasn't Solomon. That descendant, although Solomon was David's descendant, but Solomon didn't sit on the throne forever. Solomon did do good things for David. The temple was built under Solomon's reign, but we all know how Solomon's life ended. Solomon also, in a sense, was a type of Christ pointing forwards to Christ. But Christ Jesus is David's son. He's of his family line. We read that in the gospel accounts where it describes in, in Matthew and Luke in his birth. He, again, he's true man. And he's the one who fills the Davidic covenant. And he is the one who has the key of David. In other words, then, he is the arbitrator and the mediator of those who are saved. What he opens, no one will shut. And what he closes, no one will open. This, in one part, is just simply the doctrine of election. Which, of course, has justification, sanctification, and perseverance all contained in it. He has this key. No one else does. Not the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, Christians do exercise the keys in the sense of Matthew 18 and church discipline. But they are Christ's. He has the key. He's the one with the authority. He's the one who opens the door to salvation. He's the one who brings people through it. But just like the Jews in Jesus' day, who rejected him as the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant and of every covenant promise even, it would seem that these contemporary Jews in Philadelphia are doing the same thing, saying that they are in fact the true Jews, and therefore the people of God and these Philadelphian Christians were not. And so this would serve, so this, this promise here that Jesus says this quote from Isaiah and says this is about who Jesus is, this would comfort those Jews who have converted to Christianity who have realized that Jesus is the, is the Messiah and they're living here amongst the Christians in Philadelphia and these other Jews are persecuting them. As well as doing that, it would also warn those Jews who rejected Jesus, these ones who Jesus calls the synagogue of Satan here in our text. In verse 8, uh, the Lord Jesus, we read that he says of his church and is ever, that he's ever present with his people. And so, again, he reminds them that he knows their situation, how they struggled. He knows their works. The Lord knows his people, how they've been faithful, even in these difficult circumstances. And indeed, Jesus goes on to say them even, because behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. So he has set, he has the key to the door and no one is able to shut or open it. And then he says also that he has given to these faithful Christians an open door that no one is able to shut. He says he knows even that they have little power, but they've kept his word and have not denied his name. In essence, then, what's happening is these Jews who were opposing this small, uh, without much resources church in Philadelphia, right? Says they have little power. They have little influence on the surrounding area for them. They don't have a big celebrity pastor. They probably don't have this huge church with all this money. It says that they have little strength, little power. They remain faithful even despite all of that. And these Jews, by claiming they were the true people of God, were acting like they could shut out God's, shut out people out of God's kingdom. They were saying, no, you guys aren't actually part of God's kingdom. We are part of God's kingdom. You guys are not. They're acting as if they have the key to the door. And Jesus is like, nope, nope, nope. That's not right at all. Not today. This door, it even alludes to God's people being a part of the city and temple of God after the second coming, which is referred to in verse 12. And only Christ has final authority with that. Did Trey get picked up, brother? No, he's just left. Boxes. 
<laughs> okay. So, <laughs> so Christ has opened this door through his death, his burial, and resurrection, and no one can shut it. Not Satan, not the beast in Revelation, which state we'll see, not those Jews in Philadelphia who persecute Christ's church, as the city of Philadelphia was an open door of trade both to east and west, so too was the church in Philadelphia going to be an open door of sorts. That is, an open door to Christ's messianic kingdom. That's what Christ says of them. He set before them an open door which no one can shut. And even today, this phrase, an open door, is sometimes used. Maybe you might have heard it sometimes before. Sometimes people say something like, oh, well, um, you know, like you have a job and there's room for growth. And so someone might say, oh, there's an open door for advancement, you know, in your position, meaning that there's, there's, there's room for progress. There's room for change. Even in the New Testament, uh, the Apostle Paul speaks like this. And when he refers to it, he's always speaking of it in the sense of the work of gospel ministry. So 1 Corinthians 16.9, uh, there he says, for a wide door for effective service has opened to me. And there are, though there are many adversaries. And then in 2 Corinthians 2.12, he says, Now when it came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, he's speaking of an open door to do gospel work in both of those, in both those examples. And the same thing is happening here. This little church with little power, with little influence in its culture, and its city, society, is being given open door with the gospel. These people love Jesus. They aren't confusing law and gospel. There's no gospel preaching here where the law and the gospel are confused and mixed. The law is used rightly and the gospel is used to declare uh, salvation and the justification of sinners. And these Jews who are persecuting the church at this time, well, they will come to acknowledge that Christ Jesus is, in fact, Lord. Look at verse 9 in our text. They are in reality a synagogue of Satan, a false church. They claim to be true Jews, but the Lord Jesus is going to make them come and bow down their feet, and they'll realize that he, Jesus, loves this Philadelphia congregation. There, there were certainly ethnic Jews in this church, I'm assuming at least, in this congregation of Philadelphia. I would think so. But it seems clear that it's mostly Gentiles, hence the division and the persecution. But it would appear from this text here that Jesus, the one, remember, who has the key of David, is going to bring many of those rebellious Jews under conviction and gather them to the church. They're going to, quote, come and bow down before their feet. They're going to be humbled. In other words, they're going to bow, be bowed down, not bowing down to the Christians of, in Philadelphia there, but bowing down to the God that the Christians there are worshiping, to worship God. And the, we know that because it says that knowing the God does, in fact, extend his love to these elect Gentiles. It doesn't matter where we're born, friends. When the Spirit comes to a person in power, his divine love is upon them. Not speaking of a general love here in Philadelphia, it's his covenant love that's in view. His uh, Maybe we can make a case you know, for God's general love, of course, but that's not what's being talked about here. This is his saving love, his covenant love, his hesed in the Hebrew, his covenant, faithful, enduring love that conquers death and vanquishes sin. Christ is building his church, and part of building his church in Philadelphia, this church, these people that he loves, which is what he says at the end of verse 9, part of that 
is going to be in persevering true believers and then even adding to them people who at one time persecuted them. Now, what does that tell you about how we should treat our enemies, friends? How should we treat those who persecute the church for being or for believing in the resurrected and living crucified Jesus? There could be situations that would arise that would make this more complex, of course, certainly. But generally speaking, we should keep true to the gospel with those who would persecute us. We suffer for, and really, we even we suffer with Christ, and we keep preaching the gospel, compelling people to turn from sin and to and then to turn to Christ for forgiveness. Because perhaps there's an open door there, just like he put this open door here in Philadelphia, and in a very real sense, by the way. What causes this door to be opened? I mean, of course, Jesus, right? He's the one who has the key to it. He's the one who says he places it. But from our point of view, is it not the preaching of the gospel? The gospel is the power to save for the Jew and Gentile we read in Romans 1. We don't have the key to this door ourselves. Christ and Christ alone does. But we are used of him when we proclaim the gospel. It's a door. Will people go through it and land on that narrow way? That's a divine work. But our job is simply to show others that door, to show people that way. Now, we come to a somewhat difficult set of verses after this in verse 9. Not difficult, really, just misinterpreted by many, especially over the last 150 years, with that theological system known as dispensationalism. Really quick, for memory's sake, dispensationalism is a system of theology that looks at the whole Bible, and sees a lot of discontinuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament, even in some cases seeing two peoples of God, Israel, or I should, I should say especially seeing two peoples of God, Israel and the church. And it's usually always associated with the eschatology, the end times position known as premillennialism, meaning that Christ is going to come back at the end of the age and he's going to reign for a thousand years um, and that's the millennium. Whereas all millennialism, the way that I've been teaching so far through this and will continue, is that we're now in the millennium. The millennium is this time in between Jesus' first and second coming. Right? But anyways, premillennial dispensationalists have really done some work with this verse. So notice this in, in verse 10, okay? This congregation has kept Christ's word about his patient endurance. Uh, this is the fourth and the last time this is mentioned in the apocalypse. If you remember, this speaks to the church's patiently enduring trials and tribulations, things which are common in this age. Jesus himself suffered, even to the point of death. And we know that if Jesus suffered, those who are following Jesus will also likewise suffer, correct? And that you know sometimes happens to his followers, even to the point of death. But he's here with us, and every blessing in the heavenly places are ours already, and he's even protecting us spiritually through these things. Even if our bodies die, can someone kill our faith? No. Right? Jesus is preserving us through these things. But here's the debated part. And this is what he says in verse 10. He says, I will keep you, bless you, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. And then verse 11 begins, I am coming soon. So this verse has been variously interpreted, most notably again by the dispensationalists who believe that a secret rapture will come and will take place before the seven year tribulation period begins. In other words, Premillennial dispensationalists believe that in the future, before things get really bad on the earth with like wars and heavy persecution, there'll be something called a rapture, which means being caught up into the air. And you'll be the Christians, people will be raptured, they'll be taken off the world 
they don't have to deal with the tribulation. Granted, there's some pre-mill dispensationalists who disagree with that, but that's the, that's the most common position, okay? Now, this verse is cited often as a proof text for that wrong idea. Since Christ supposedly promises to remove this church from the hour of trial, in other words, the tribulation period, which is yet to come upon the earth by this so-called secret rapture. The problem with this, though, should be obvious, just from a plain reading of the text. For one, if that was true, this would mean nothing at all then to the Philadelphia Christians who received this letter, if it was some future thing. And he's dealing with a literal and true congregation that existed in time. Why say this if it wouldn't be true for them who received the letter? It doesn't make sense. Secondly, it says he's coming soon. Well, it's been 1,900 years at least since he said that, and certainly to his original audience. That would not be soon to them in the sense of coming for this rapture. And we can't try and say something along the lines of God being outside of time or with him a day is like a thousand years. Those truths aren't applicable to the meaning of this passage. Because if it were, then God would be communicating with us in a way that we couldn't understand. This, he'd be, it'd be confusing to us. Remember what Revelation is about. It's about understanding. This must mean something else. Plus, we've seen with previous addresses in these other churches that great tribulation is already upon these churches. In Revelation 2, is it 2 or verse 12? I forget exactly, but I know it's not either one of those verses. But I know in, in Revelation 2, it talked about them being in great tribulation. Uh, in Revelation 7, 14, we'll note this as well, the great tribulation begins with the coming of Christ. And every church exists in this age and has the characteristics of great tribulation upon them to some varying degree as the Lord would see fit. And the protection that is spoken of here isn't so much a physical one, but a spiritual one. Throughout this time period that we're living in, Christ's church does experience physical persecution. People are still being martyred today. I think I shared with a few lessons back that there are more people actually being killed for the faith today than there were when this book was written. For the, for the simple principle that there are more Christians now on this world than there were back then as well. But physical persecution, physical suffering, uh, even if that's just being ostracized and, and put out of the community and being respected, it happens in this age that we are living in. But, and Christ doesn't promise to protect us from those things, but he promises to protect us from falling away because of them. He, there's a spiritual battle being going on right now, and Christ provides for a spiritual protection, and he perseveres us through these things. He'll protect his church even from the hour of trial, trial the spiritual battle over souls. So the church in Philadelphia has been kept, has not been kept from this hour of trial in the sense that they're going to be removed from the earth, but I would submit to you that it was kept from this hour of trial somewhat like America has been, especially from the last 18th century through the, from the late part of the 18th century through the late part of the 20th century, when Christianity thrived in America, when godly laws were passed, and what seems like an open door was active here in this nation, and true Christian professions seemed to abound. Right? There wasn't people having their heads cut off for believing in Christ in America in that time period, correct? There wasn't, there wasn't a lot of hardship put upon Christians in America during that time period. Right? They were, in this time period, kept from this hour of trial. 
And unless you're blind, if you look around, things seem to be changing in America. It seems now like the version of Christianity that many hold to is contrary to, the, to that which the Bible speaks of. And may God be merciful to us. But if you look at the church over the last 2,000 years at various places and various locations, you would know that Christians have been enduring things that we will be reading about in the coming pages through this letter over the coming months. Like even, for example, in the 18th to the 20th century when Christianity was thriving in the United States. What was Christianity like in many places in Africa or in, in Afghanistan, in Saudi Arabia? Christians were getting killed and slaughtered over there all the time, right? So we have to look at these things from a more global perspective. And we'll deal with that as we go through this book. I should mention as well, the church in Philadelphia has not fully disappeared even to this day. It's interesting. It's the only one that, that could be said of. It thrived in some sense of the word through the Byzantine era, so from like 300 AD all the way to the 15th century. And in the modern equivalent of it today, which is that city called Eshelar, I think, uh, there is even a Roman Catholic presence there today. And you know how it is with Rome. There could be some true saints among them. Well, so, I mean, this church, the sixth church in the seven letters here, definitely has been blessed by Christ. Having promise to deliver this church from further suffering, Jesus gives them the following word of exhortation. He says, I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one will seize your crown. Now, not only does Jesus promise to come to the Philadelphians quickly, which again, would mean not bodily then, right? Because he's going to, he's coming to support them spiritually, to preserve them from the hour of trial, spiritually preserving them. He also encourages them to hold fast to what they have. In other words, the gospel, which they heard and believed. By holding fast to the gospel, no one will take from them their crown. We let go of the gospel. We let go of our hope, our joy. We, we, we have to guard the gospel. The apostle Paul tells Timothy to guard the deposit that was given to him. We, we, don't, we don't let people try to abuse the gospel. We don't let people say that some things are, are not sin because guess what the gospel does? The gospel says those things are sin, and that's why Jesus had to go to the cross. So he's, he's encouraging them to hold fast to the gospel, and no one will take from them their crown. Probably, again, a reference to the fact uh, that, that Isaiah 22 passage from earlier, God promises to take away uh, Shebna's crown and give it to Eliakim, uh, who's been faithful. There's this interconnection between Isaiah 22 and Revelation 3 here. And like with previous addresses, Jesus ends this discourse by speaking of those who conquer, of those who overcome, in other words. And the promises given here reflect the situation the residents of the ancient city would be familiar with. So look at verse 12. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. So there are a number of interesting points here as we conclude. First, uh, for one thing, Jesus promises to make the conqueror a pillar in God's temple, a temple which they will be forced, which they will never be forced to leave. The promise makes perfect sense against the backdrop of continual earthquakes which rocked the earthly city, Philadelphia. Instead of sleeping outside and living in fear, God's people will be given a permanent dwelling place. And there'll be these residences that are like pillars in this heavenly temple, which even now God is building in this body of Christ. Unlike earthly structures that can be destroyed, this temple cannot be shaken. 
There's no need to flee at night. There's even no night, really, for, for Christians in, in the New Jerusalem. For all those who dwell in this temple, dwell in perfect peace and in perfect safety. Never shall they go out of it. And if you remember as well, that city that they were living in, Philadelphia, was renamed. and It was given a name that exalted Caesar. Well, look at what Christians get. We get the name of the Father on us. That's not like an encouragement to go out and get Christian tattoos or something like that. That's not what this is meaning here. That's another conversation. <laughs> but even we get the name of the heavenly city of on us and Christ. And the point of these things is that we are owned and that we are protected by God. And, and we are with God in his stronghold, as it were, like our, our verse from Nahum 1.7. The application for us is very simple, straightforward from all this. Uh, Kim Riddlebarger says, God knows how to protect all those who are his, even in the midst of the hour of trial. Christ's promise is that he will protect us from the wrath and the wiles of Satan, and that he will preserve us in the hour of trial whenever it comes. At some point, we will all face some hour of trial, some, some crossroad when, when you have doubts of your faith. In your faith. What what will happen? Well, what Christ is saying here is that if you when you are truly his, he will preserve you through that. And through his own death and resurrection, Jesus has given us an open door to the kingdom of heaven, a door which no one can close. And that it, what more is even now, Jesus is preparing for us that heavenly city which cannot be shaken, where we will dwell as pillars in his presence forever and ever. By Christ's grace, we are a part of that, fortified, strengthened, unable to be removed even. So therefore, let us hold fast to that which we have been given, the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and all its promises. For by doing so, we'll overcome and we'll dwell in the heavenly temple forever and forever. He takes poor sinners. He takes people who disregard him, people who even persecute and hate Christians. And by grace, he makes them into pillars of heaven. What a wonderful God our God is. And you know, you, if you don't know that, if you don't truly, if you haven't truly experienced that, pray, pray that you might. God is merciful. He's a God who is willing to forgive those who repent and for those who seek righteousness and forgiveness in Christ and Christ alone. Let's pray. Well, one other thing. It ends on, I don't want to just skip it, I guess. Verse 13, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's how he's ended almost all of these letters. And so again, that makes perfect sense, even a lot of what we've been saying. All right? he, he's, he's building this up. He's keeping this. If you hear this, if you hear Jesus' voice, well, listen to what the Spirit is saying. This should encourage you. This should give you great joy. So let's pray now. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you <coughs> for these promises that you give us. And though we don't live in a place like Philadelphia that's plagued by earthquakes and has been renamed as a false god, these promises that are given in light of, those, of these things are still great encouragements to us, Lord. We pray that you would help us to know, God, that the gospel is extremely important to you and that you would give us grace that we might always think of it rightly and strength so that we might defend it so that there would be an open door before us and before our families and before people in our community as well. We pray that you would grant salvation, Lord, um, 
that you would soften the hearts of those who were chosen in Christ before the foundation of this world. And if there are even people who are here in a part of First Family Church, whether they're not even here tonight, but maybe they just come on Sundays or other days in the week, God, the food pantry, whenever it is, we pray that your gospel would have its effect upon people in so much as that it would cause their hard, rebellious hearts to be turned to hearts of flesh, hearts that love you. And we know that what you do is right. And so we praise you and we thank you for taking care of us and for showing us the truth as it is in Christ Jesus. And we pray this all in his name. Amen. I'm sorry. Did you say Byzantine? Did I say that wrong? How do you say it? The Byzantine everywhere? Byzantine. No, no it's Byzantine. No. It's Byzantine. It's Byzantine. <laughs> yeah. Cool. I mean, I am not the, the person to like pronounce things correctly often. I know, I fully own that. I did say Roman Catholic and church together. What do you mean? <laughs> I said, well, I fully admit that there could be people in Roman, the Roman Catholic church that are true Christians. Could be, yeah. It's a, sure, it's a church. So there's a Mormon church. A church just means a gathering of people, right? So not the, the true, not a Christian church, no. When you said that more Christians are being murdered today, does that mean like, well, does that mean that like more people are dying today, or are they dying because they are Christians? Martyrs. And both are true, right, Steve? But there's more people being martyred today, killed for their faith. That's what a martyr is, right? Someone who dies for the system of belief they believe and you can have martyrs for any kind of religion i mean there's the the muslims who you know it's they try to martyr themselves you know they kill themselves the radicals yeah but anyways that's not what christians do christians get killed for refusing to denounce jesus anyways good question guys